America's foster care system is a problem. Laura Bauer and Judy Thomas have examined the system for the last year, and they join us next on Deep Background. Greetings, you're on Deep Background for December 18th, 2019. A quick note before we go on, this will be the last Deep Background podcast for 2019. We're going to take a little bit of the holidays off to recuperate and think about what we do, but we'll be back next year. We're almost up to 200 episodes. That's a pretty good deal for this little (laughs) podcast, and we're glad you can be with us and glad that you listen, of course. My uh, friend and colleague uh, Derek Donovan is joining us. Derek, great to have you on the podcast. Always good to be here. And Laura Bauer and Judy Thomas, who have been, I must say, in the bunker for about six months, it seems like, writing an extraordinary series that's getting national attention, of course, about problems in the foster care system, particularly for those who were in it once but are not in it now. Laura, great to have you with us, and Judy as well. <laughs> Let's start with you, Laura. Just give us some sense. What what uh, have you found? It, it, it's the, the, the stories are disturbing in the sense that I think the, the headline that grabbed everyone's attention is there are more foster kids in prison than in college. Mm-hmm. T- 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 how did that happen? Well, what's so interesting, and I think it's important to note how this whole idea came about, and it was with Sister Berta, who was talking to us seven or eight years ago, and she was trying to place a older teenager in a home. He was struggling at home, but she didn't want him to land in the system because she knew if he landed in the system, bad things may happen to him, more trauma, and the family wouldn't be able to get him back. She was calling all over, trying to find a place, and she couldn't find a place. And we had gone over to talk to her about another story, and she was just very frustrated and said at that time, foster care is just a breeding ground for prison. And what happens is these kids go into the foster care system, they have trauma already, they're in an unstable home, and they get in and are often moved around. They only want their biological family, and the trauma increases. And then they, they lose sight of the school, they don't graduate many times, and what Judy and I found is over and over again the same story was being repeated. And when they age out, they age out alone. They don't have the guidance of somebody to help them get a job or, or fill out a resume or, and do any of that. And they end up on another cycle with a state-run institution, and this time prison. Right. Judy, I think it's fair to say that most Americans, when they think of foster care, there are sort of two ways of looking at it. One, they, they may see a seven or an eight-year-old who faces challenges in a family or loses parents or or has an abusive uh, home situation from which he or she must be removed. Or the horror stories, which you guys have reported on before, where a, a foster kid is starved or beaten or kept from the public. But your focus has been much more on, I think, the forgotten mm-hmm. part of this, right? That right. that these are, you know, 15, 16, 17-year-old kids, mm-hmm. and then they reach the magic age of 18. Many of them then left out or kicked out of the home that they're in, and, and some end up on the streets or in worse trouble, right? That's right, and those are the ones we don't hear so much about because you do think of the, the little kids being in foster care. And what, what we found uh, was, and we, we visited one homeless shelter for youth in Indianapolis, and 68% of the kids that were there uh, so far this past year had been uh, in foster care. 
And so what happens is they age out of the system and then they have no support. They have no you know, family, they have nobody representing them, nobody to turn to. We talked to, uh, in, in this shelter in Indianapolis, they said that one kid was just dropped off at a mall when he was 18 and uh, the, the foster family, you know, they just said, we're done with you. How does that happen? I mean, it, it, you know, it, one assumes that people who become involved in the foster care system as parents have some commitment to helping these kids, most of them, not all. I mean, there is, there is a financial part of this, but also, you know, and yet, you know, you report story after story where kids are literally kicked out on their 18th birthday. How, how can a parent do that? I mean, it, 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 you know, it, it seems as if they're ill-prepared for this aging out system. Right, and some of the families uh, do. There are some states, or quite a few states, that have extended the age to 21 and even higher, right, mm -hmm. up to 23, yeah. that, where kids can be helped beyond that. Mm -hmm. But a lot of the kids we talk to, said they were so tired of it, especially the ones who had been bounced from place to place. They just wanted they just wanted out. They they really didn't want that help. And right, so that, right. they, that they in that essence tell the parents, too, hey, leave us alone. Leave us yeah. alone. I'm out. I'm 18. Yeah. I want to get out of here. Yeah. I think the key is when you say how can a parent do that? Some of these people they aren't a parent because there is not that there's no bond. They don't feel the bond to the child and the child mm -hmm. doesn't feel the bond right. to them and they really it, it, unfortunately it can become a page. Are those parents no, there's no question about that. Are those what's the typical length of stay for a teenage foster child? I mean, is it two years or, or is there's no real average there? I mean, because again, I think the assumption we all have is these 18 year olds who are, who age out may have been in a family or for 11 or 12 years. That's not the case, is it? No. And, and what we are finding, particularly for the troubled kids, right? right. Laura, who are the biggest problem. Parents say, I just can't handle this teenager. And that's when the bouncing Right. really gets out of hand. And the very unofficial anecdotal okay. uh, saying is if you're in foster care when you're 12 or 13, you're going to stay in foster care. You're not going to be adopted at that late of an right, age. Right. And um, what we found in many of the surveys, a large portion had said that they had spent more than nine years in foster care. And it just gets to the point, and, and you don't know what it is. A young man that we're about to write about for one of the last stories he was in foster care for 18 years and he had 18 different placements and when probably given too much away because we haven't finished the story but um he went to the judge at 12 or 13 and he had had enough he was on the track to be adopted and he just looked at the judge and said i can't do it anymore i keep calling these people mom and dad and then i moved and he just wanted to age out and now he's doing really well yeah. so but it, it's very interesting because judy and i both have covered this topic for many years and you're somebody told us in this project that social workers you know they wake up every day to do the right thing they're overworked and they're underpaid and their caseloads are crazy and but they're so busy worrying about what's coming in the front door every day. They can't worry about the long term, don't have time to worry about the long term outcomes of these kids. And what Judy and I have been able to do is show them, well, here's what happens. And though it's not scientific, you know, when you get 6,000 inmates to fill out a survey in 12 states, it's a snapshot. 
of one in four have been in foster care. And of that group, it was mm-hmm. 58% of those had been homeless. Yeah, 58. And 70 74- And not a lot of them had been in care that long. You know, well, 11 to 14 was the biggest percentage, at the ages yeah. 11 to 14. Because not a lot in. of them entered when they were really young either. And those are the hardest ones to, the hardest. to. And while well, well, it's true that social workers mm-hmm. wake up to do the right thing every day, too, the vast majority of foster parents do the right thing. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. You, you, we hear so much bashing mm-hmm. the foster parents, like you say, you know, it's just a paycheck. But you, you just have to mm-hmm. think about about the kind of person who wants to put him or herself out there to do that. For all the ones that you know you hear that are in it for the paycheck, you have people like Tammy Spears and Lori Ross and others, many, many more than that, that they do want to do right by these kids. Sometimes, though, the kids are so troubled by the time they get there, then it's really hard well, for them. Well, didn't you also find, and Judy, maybe I'll ask you, you also found literal brain damage from kids who were moved around a lot, mm-hmm. or at least that's the current that's the emerging research science, suggests yeah. that. Yeah. Yes, and Eric Adler did that story that ran yesterday in print, and yes, a lot of studies, or studies are starting to find that, and there are a couple lawsuits now that have been filed, class action suits, that mention that, because they say the moving around from place to place uh, repeatedly can cause uh, harm to the child's brain. Yeah. Are states, are there any states, Laura, that seem to have a better handle on this than others? You know, one of the things you talked about is that people don't track graduation rates, they don't really follow these kids. Once they age out, they're just thrown into the adult world and people don't keep track of them. Yeah, are there any states that are exemplars or best practices that you found? Or other countries, too. Or is, countries. Is, is there anybody it's, else who does it better than we do? It's funny. We, we started to do the stories on other countries, and Sweden kept coming up. We weren't <laughs> understanding why. We just thought maybe everything's better in Sweden. But um, there are states that are trying to address the issues. You know, California has come a long way in trying to address some of the education outcomes. Uh, Indiana, and that's one um, state that we really point to in the series, because what they have done is they had advocates that say, this isn't right. You know, we need to know how these kids in your custody are doing education-wise. And so they just last year started a report card of saying, here are how foster kids are doing in comparison to their peers. And the state was uh, very upset with the results All of right. that some of the card. Some of the states that you tried to survey wouldn't even let you ask inmates, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. 38, and, and 38 they, of them. Yeah. And, and why is that, Judy? Because they don't want to know or don't think this is a real problem or uh, I mean well, I, I was, was just struck mix. through the whole thing yes uh, the whole the series of stories of, at how much ostrich like behavior is involved here where people responsible at mm-hmm. the 30,000 foot level yeah. don't want to admit that there's even a problem no I, I it was a mix I think some of the now Kansas we have to give credit for or two because Roger Warholt who was the acting DOC secretary is the one that kind of led the charge and allowed us uh, to come in he, they were the first state and all eight prisons in the state of Kansas did the survey and so we got more responses from them and it turn, came out one in three in the state of Kansas that were in foster care the other states um, some of them I think just didn't want to mess with it and one state uh, uh, told us that they didn't want to upset the the child welfare agency in the state by allowing us to do it other states were concerned said they were concerned about privacy of inmates and in some states we had to fill out complicated research applications before they would even consider it some required an institutional review board review um, uh, approval before they would let us in so we felt really excited to get the number of states that we did and and we're kind of thrilled about the response rate 
Go ahead. What was fascinating is the response of the inmates as well. They took the opportunity to write on the back because they wanted us to know more about their time and care. And that was where I think some of the real insight came. And what we're hearing in the response from the whole series is it's the first time people across the country have actually heard from the former foster right. kids. Right. That's the most striking thing of all, isn't it, Laura and Judy? And that is these stories are just so heartbreaking in so many ways. Uh, it's almost like, as I wrote and then took out of my editorial, Dickensian. I mean, it's a very, <laughs> and I think you did have a piece talking about the old orphan trains, and mm-hmm. and I think we all have a vision, don't we, of orphanages and how bad they can be. And yet here we are with a situation that largely goes unnoticed until you're reporting. And uh, the individual stories that, you, uh, uh, you know, a guy on death row who was a foster child and all of these 100 different homes, uh, it takes your breath away. I mean, it's very difficult, isn't it? It is. And that's what we're hearing from people, that yeah. Yeah. in their stories are hard to read. And but you know, we just heard from people in the last day that some of the states are trying to do something. I think... Everybody took something different out of every story, but um, the personal, you know, Gerald on uh, uh, Gerald on death row, and everything that he went through, you know, it was more of a neglect issue, right. um, and it's still going and, through, and, of and still going through, and and then the education piece, I think, is what has surprised people. They didn't realize that in the state of Oregon, foster kids are graduating at a rate of thirty-five percent, as opposed to seventy-seven for the general population. Kansas was thirty-nine percent. 20% just six years ago. Those things, yeah, yeah. They're shocked. Yeah. And, and the other thing we were kind of laughing about is the, the historical con- or context of it with the orphan trains. We didn't know about the orphan trains, and when we were looking into the origins of foster care, that's where we came across it. And so many people, even some of the child welfare advocates, hadn't heard of that. But the similarities are, are still pretty striking, uh, and how children were treated back then and some of the things that we're hearing about today. Right, although uh, I, I have some personal knowledge of some of the stuff involving um, adoptions from many years ago. And again, the orphan train thing kind of fits the classic idea of foster care, which is mm-hmm. young babies, adopt- Adopted at birth, never knew their birth parents, uh, and raised by loving families. Your series involves something very different from that. Kids bouncing from house to house, some of the times in abusive relationships. And and Judy, I'll address this to you. There's also some uh, research that says that birth parents need to stay in contact with their foster kids, even if they're removed from the home, Mm -hmm. siblings as well, Mm -hmm. that maybe that's uh, one way to address this concern. Yes, and and that's the whole family preservation issue is is huge right now. And a lot of the the people we're hearing from are saying they're so glad that we address that because, uh, you know, 110 years ago, there was a White House conference on dependent children and Teddy Roosevelt, President Roosevelt even said back then, children need to be with their families. And so we're, we're hearing from a lot of people about that and and splitting siblings they did that during the orphan train era and they're still doing it today right, in right. foster care is but not good go, ahead, go ahead laura and then i want to take a break because i do want to get to solutions here in a minute yeah and and i think the family preservation is a big part of it now one thing that we were very clear to say there are some children that need and must mm-hmm. be in foster care when you have physical and not 
abuse. and not in co- contact with parents. Right. right. When you have physical abuse, when you have sexual abuse, those children need to be safe, and they cannot be in jeopardy anymore, and they need to be. What happens is, is when you're not doing the family preservation piece right, you can clog the system. So kids mm-hmm. that may be able to stay at home with poverty issues addressed, they're not taking up a bed that is needed for the severely abused or neglected child. Yeah. So that's one thing um, that we're hearing um, from advocates and experts across the country that hadn't really been discussed in that way before. All right, let's take a break. When we come back, we'll talk about ways we might address this problem. You're on Deep Background. Hey there, this is Derek Donovan of the Kansas City Star Editorial Board, and we hope you're enjoying the podcast. If you like what you hear, help us support this podcast and the journalism that reporters at the Star do every day by subscribing. There's an easy way for you to do it. Head to kansascity.com background. You'll even get a special discount just for being a deep background listener. By subscribing at that URL, you will get three months of unlimited digital access to the Star for $1.99 total. That's right, you get access to kansascity.com, the e-edition of the newspaper, our mobile apps, and more for three whole months, and it only costs you $1.99. That's a pretty sweet deal. Plus, you will be supporting journalism that makes a difference in Kansas City. So, go grab your computer or mobile device and head to kansascity.com background. And hey, thanks for listening. Back now with my colleague Derek Donovan, uh, Dave Helling with the Stars Editorial Board, Judy Thomas and Laura Bauer. Okay, we, we had a conversation about this at lunch yesterday with some of your colleagues. Maybe you heard us in the other part of the room. Um, some some stories present relatively easy solutions. I, I worked on the public defender series that we did, and the, the, it's clear there if you spent more money and you did some, you know, the solutions seem relatively easy. This one is a uh, good lord uh, uh, hard. Uh, do you either of you disagree with that? Judy, you first. I mean, this is the I'm fixing. This is going to be because the foster care system that we now have depends on the goodwill of thousands of foster parents, paid or unpaid, who step forward to, into the breach. But you can't force more people to take in kids. You, you so you know you could double the pay, triple the pay, or whatever. How do we? What 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 are steps we need to take in your view? Well, some people say we should just blow the whole system up and start over. But what what? But we're what hearing, would you start with? Well, I mean, that, what, <laughs> what we're hearing is is still the family preservation issue is is right. a good start. And, and they let's say if we can that. keep kids in yeah. their families, well, you can either do prevention services before they're taken from the home, or you can once they're pulled from the home, work with programs with the families drug abuse, you know, counseling, those kind of things, parenting classes to keep or get the kids back home. But one of the things that we found out in all the the budgets that we went through is there's three times as much money in there's 30 billion spent a year on child welfare in federal, state and local dollars. For the the foster care system. For well, for all child welfare. Right. 45% of that money goes as of two years ago, the most recent figures, 45% goes to foster care and only about 15% is spent on family preservation, keeping the kids in their homes. And so it, it's what, 25000 a year to keep a kid in foster care, one kid, 
and only five to ten thousand is that right to do family preservation right. services for a whole family so it, there is a cost difference there and it, they say it's more cost effective if it's safe to keep the kids in their home to, to do spend yeah. the money on that family so. preservation is obviously part of it but it's mm -hmm. a broad that's a broad topic it isn't is, it Laura right. you, that means affordable housing quality yes. jobs good transportation mm -hmm. food nutritional support counseling Great schools. I mean, you know, it's really, uh, again, you can't just snap your fingers and fix it. Well, and, and part of the problem is, is everyone thinks it's a child welfare problem, and it's not. It's the whole community. And so child welfare gets the brunt of it by saying, oh, well, you need to fix these families. Well, how are they going to give services if there's not the housing, if there's not the child care available for these families? It's really, and how we laid the series out, is really in a journey of where the kid goes and, and how the child moves through the system. So first, it would be family preservation of those families that can be kept together, keep them together. And Kansas is doing something, and you know Kansas has been hit pretty hard in several year, past several years for not doing things right. They are starting to look at family preservation, and they started with team decision building. And what that means is there's a team around this child, maybe a teacher, family, grandparents, and they all get together and they decide how do we keep this child in the family? What are the services? Who can help out? Before, they were really making the decision of a social worker and, yeah. and who may not have that experience. They're trying. They have kept families in the last two months together that would have been removed. That's a step. But you also look at accountability. And when you're looking at the education piece, that's so crucial, I think, in the reporting that Judy and I did. Because if you don't have that education, you're not going to be able to What do you do mean by that? that? Like educating the parents as to how to keep the family no, together? Or just teaching kids well? Yeah. Teaching kids well. And what happens is when you're moving, them we talked to mm -hmm. an, an inmate they don't who just go got to school out. they don't yeah. their attendance is a she problem she had 27 schools you yeah. try going to 27 schools yeah. how are you going to learn anything don't you think a part of this too is that it's fairly hard to make the case to people that this is better for society in general. I mean, yeah. if you just think about it, if you cut down on the number of foster kids, you cut down on the number of people who go into a life of crime. And if you can get, you know, if you can address this yeah. early on, it's going to be better for everybody. But, but so many see it as child, as welfare. Right. Welfare. Yeah. Helping, right. Giving, well, right. Throwing e money e at families. Either welfare, which you know, temporary assistance for needy families, mm -hmm. that's you know, by definition what we're talking about, at least part of it. But these kids are so invisible. They're, you, you know, they don't you know, I think we all sort of conceptually understand that there are some kids who face major tough challenges, but by and large, they're, you know, until your work, invisible. And so there's not really a political constituency that says, hey, we need to we need to help these kids but if we can. The impact is so great. When Joseph Nelson was charged four years ago with killing three people in this community in South Kansas City, uh, the day after he was charged, Lori Ross took to Facebook and she was angry and she wrote this post and she said, this is what we are doing. We need to do better by these kids. When we take them out of their home, we're supposed to do better than if they had stayed in the home. And her thought was, you know, let's do more to help these kids because the next homicide, the next robbery, that could be a foster kid. And not that these kids are bad, but these kids haven't given, been given the chance or the support to right. make it. And, we, and Judy, we say kids, but isn't one part of the solution to provide counseling and support services way past 
uh, teenagehood into the you know to twenties mm-hmm. and thirties. I mean, some mm-hmm. of these mm-hmm. some of these uh, foster children become yeah. adults, and they need a lifetime really of help exactly. and counseling. And one of the things we found in in the inmates that we've interviewed, and and we we interviewed three of them in in Topeka. Two of them had children themselves, and the cycle just repeats itself. Yes, because they had children, um, you know, two uh, two by the age of twenty for one of them, and she one of them lost both of her kids. Well, I guess they both did, mm-hmm. and uh, they've gone into foster care now too. And they say that, and, and now she, one of the women we just interviewed, was just released two weeks ago, and she, th- and that's another issue. There's no place to put them, and they, she ended up in a, going to Wichita. And she's, you know, if she doesn't find a job and she doesn't find a home, you know, the what's going to happen? And and she was concerned about her children too. Is you know what's going to happen? Isn't your isn't your we'll wrap up here in a minute. But isn't another lesson, if you will, from your series that as sort of a a society or or you know as a people, we let folks fall through the cracks all the time. That, 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 and it isn't just foster kids. I mean, it's a broad uh, problem in which people who need help can't get it and then become more expensive, more difficult, more challenging than they would be if we sort of intervened earlier. And I, this is the point of the spear, but it's part of a much broader thing, isn't it? Yes, and Brian Lowry has been helping us by interviewing uh, senators, senators and representatives in D.C., and he spoke to one yesterday who basically said, we're just building prisons to take care of the problems that we're not right. addressing with education and everything else, and, and why are we doing that? And right. But I think what's everybody does get lost, but when you look at these children, and these children went into foster care for no fault of their own and then they that's the other thing to keep mm-hmm. in mind it isn't as if they're these, not the two-year-old doing like you know no. misbehaving yeah and and be, and i think you know we've covered this for years and and for me it goes back two decades what was not on my radar is the the feeling of loneliness they have, the feeling of not belonging, and when they don't have that fear of yeah, abandonment, yeah. when they don't have that attachment, that is really damaging. And and when Judy was talking to Gerald on Texas Death Row, he said, "I didn't love myself. Why was I going to love anybody else?" And it's yeah. so hard to get inside the brain if you yeah. are a person who grew up with parents and you had those bonds. It, it's so alien to you. And we all know too, it's very hard to get people to really sympathize with people who've committed criminal acts. Exactly. And so it that becomes its own cycle, right? And like Keisha Van Dyne, the one that we, one of the inmates we featured said, I always felt like a throwaway, like nobody gave a damn about me. You know, yeah. that's, that's. I will say one thing that has been enlightening in the response to this: we haven't had those people that say, "Oh, they're criminals. Don't listen to them." Not one person has that's said right. that. I must say, I thought, uh, as a quick aside, I thought we'd get a lot more of that after public defenders, where right. people would write and say, "What do you care? They're robbers and rapists mm-hmm. and thieves." Yeah. And the opposite is the case. I think there's a general understanding that there are people in our society who are getting screwed because they're poor or they have life circumstances that none of the people around this table and probably very few of the people listening to the podcast have ever had to face. And they show enormous grace and courage to do it in facing those problems. Uh, but sometimes they can just be overwhelming, which I think is another right. conclusion one can draw from your guys' work. And sometimes people just choose or don't see them. And what we're hearing from people is this series has helped people see them. 
And, and if anything mm-hmm. that we can take from that is yeah. that it has opened the eyes and that maybe they're not so invisible. And we got a very heartwarming email yesterday from a young woman who was in foster care, aged out 10 years ago, went to Congress, um, helped craft the Family First um, initiative. And she said, you don't know what you've done for me and other foster kids because you've told our story and people need to see it. And we are out here. We do need help. And it was just really, wasn't it, Judy? Yeah. Do you remember? And the response has been bipartisan on the calls yeah. for action and the people saying we need to do something. And that's good to hear, too. Right. So. And it's good to just remind our listeners that good quality reporting is uh, brings these uh, issues to light. And that's what... Clearly, uh, Laura and Judy have been involved in, and so we thank you and thank them for that. And uh, um, we appreciate those who listen and read and subscribe and all the folks who take this journalism seriously because these people need help, and we're in a position to try and help them if we can in this discussion needs to continue. So, Well, and what is so important is this did take a year of our time. And it took about six to seven months of doing the surveys and reaching out to these people. And the STAR has made uh, a commitment to that kind of journalism, and we're grateful for that because some papers, uh, some media companies can't do that, and that w- that the STAR has made that commitment is, I just think, the nation's stronger for right. it. And we thank those who help uh, fund that commitment. So Laura Bauer, <laughs> Judy Thomas, thank you so much for coming in. Great work. <laughs> you know, obviously... You guys, I think you were on, I listened to your uh, interview, with, uh, Laura, on NPR the other day. The nation is starting to take some notice of this work, and and uh, obviously follow-ups and other things will uh, continue, in part because this seems like a lifetime endeavor to try and mm-hmm. fix this system, and it's certainly worth your time, and certainly worth the time of any listener who hasn't mm-hmm. read the series yet, go to KansasCity.com. Laura Bauer, Judy Thomas, thanks so much for coming in. Derek Donovan, my colleague from the editorial uh, editorial board. Thanks for joining us. And again, I'm Dave Helling with the board. You have been on Deep Background.